0: We're starting a, a new series today. It's going to be a short series. Uh, it's four weeks and looking at a few different stories where people encounter Jesus and are changed. And we all want to experience change in our lives. That, that can be in all sorts of different things, but we want to experience change in our lives. None of us want to stay the same and be the same. And I've never talked to anyone that just says, I, I kind of want to live a stagnant life. That's, that's who I want to be. We, we want change in our lives. And I think even more than change or maybe along with change, a lot of us are looking for a thing or maybe like a key that opens up change into all sorts of areas, maybe one thing that can lead to change in all sorts of things. And sometimes we use the phrase, this changes everything. And we want something like that in our lives, that whatever it is that we're going through, whatever it is that we're experiencing, is there something that we could say, this changes everything. And that's kind of an overused phrase. Even just this week, I was looking at where we kind of talk about this changes everything. And uh, (laughs) we're having all sorts of technical difficulties today, but here we go. So this is just some different headlines where we use this phrase, talking about what the vaccine news could mean for markets. So we want financial change, and maybe something that could lead to this changes everything in the in financially. Or we think about even when it comes politically or with uh, courts. This says Washington State shows how a truly progressive court changes everything here's a, another one it says from the chicago sun times this changes everything stars detail Hollywood's slow progress in correcting its sexism this is a, a new book that has come out talking about the me too movement and so if you think about politics if you think about finances if you think about kind of social movements that have taken place we want something that we can say this changes everything and what if that could happen here here's another one Breaking Bad theory that changes everything. This is where I kind of say, maybe this is kind of over, you know, overused phrase, but even snacks. Did you know that you can get Bucky's snacks delivered? This chain, and this is with the periods, this period changes, period, everything. I actually looked these up on Amazon to see if I was like, does this really change everything? And here's a, here's a final one, the perfect fringe, which is a bang sort of, Thing uh, that changes everything and that fascinates. And I don't know, you know, not to knock any of you that have the fringe bangs, but I don't know if this actually changes everything. But that idea, something that could change everything. There's maybe some silly examples, some serious examples. Very few things actually change everything. There are some things, probably the internet changed everything. Probably the iPhone, in some sense, changed everything. You can settle any argument very quickly. You're just able to Google things automatically. For those of you that are navigationally challenged, you have GPS all the time with you. I use it all the time. doesn't matter if I know where I'm going. I'm just like, I will obey whatever she tells me to do. But there are certain things that changed everything. Pumpkin spice lattes probably did that, and, and now everything is pumpkin spice, right? But certain things change everything. And I think in our lives, we want to see change, but we also want, is there a thing that could change everything? Is there a thing that I could have access to that would be able to, if I had that, not just change certain areas, but it could change my work? It could change my marriage. It could change my parenting. It could change my family. It could change my own self-image and how I just kind of emotionally process things. It could change Uh, my relationship with God and the way that I relate to other people, it could change my fears and anxieties. It could change my past and and things that I think about from there. It could change habits that I have, that that I want to be done with. It could change joy and peace. Is there something that I could have that, like the internet, that like the iPhone, that like fringe bangs, (laughs) could change everything in a very real way? And in this series, we're going to look at four different stories of change, of encountering Jesus. And whether you've been a Christian for decades or you're just exploring, maybe you're not even sure kind of where you are, there is more that God can do in your life. There is change that he wants to bring into your life, and there's more reason. There's more reason to push in and say, okay, if God claims, and he does, if Christianity claims, and it does, that it can change everything. And we looked at last week on Easter, kind of celebrating the resurrection, how the resurrection changed everything, how it changed people's lives, moving them from one belief to another belief. What would happen if I took that truth more into my life? What would happen if who God is and, and what he has done, if that got brought more into my life, what change could happen? And we're going to look at today kind of one key that brings change to all sorts of things that really it could be said of this changes everything. And this is our view of God, how we view God and who he is. And, and even just if you think about it, there's extreme change beliefs of who God is that you could say, okay, if, if I was on the extreme side of this, this would really change a lot of stuff. If you thought God was this awful deity that just wanted to harm you and crush you, you might, if you believe that, live in fear. You might, if you believe that, kind of always be cowering. Or even if you think of, whether from history books or things you've studied or movies, if you think of cultures that were continually doing Uh, uh, sacrifices, even child sacrifices, and always worried about how the gods viewed them and what the gods would do. That's kind of one extreme. Or if you thought, man, God just absolutely loves me and delights in me, and he is always for me and always after my good. And if you always had a sense of that reality, that would change a lot of things in your life, right? And our view of God is one of those keys that changes everything that leads to all sorts of change in every area of our life. And we're going to look at today a well-known story, the prodigal son. And we're going to look at this story. And Jesus tells this story to two different groups of people. He tells it to the Pharisees and the religious leaders and to the tax collectors and the sinners, those people grouped together. Jesus gives this story helping us have a different kind of view of God and seeing what it is that keeps us from God. So we're going to get into this today, and I would encourage you, if you um, want to, after today, study this more, there's a great book called The Prodigal God by Tim Keller that I've learned a lot from uh, through the years and would encourage you to check that out, and if you forget that title, I can tell, you, uh, tell it to you again But let's read this story, and then we will see how this can change our view of God. It says this, he also said, Jesus, a man had two sons. So he's bringing us into this story. A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Now, let me just pause here for a second. I don't know if any of you have an inheritance or um, have ever received an inheritance, but especially in this culture, I think this would be true today, but especially in this culture, if you were to go to your father and say, I want my inheritance now, that's equivalent to basically saying, I wish you were dead. Give me the money now. I mean, I I don't know, I don't think any of us would do that today to go to your parents and say, listen, I know you're not dead yet, but give me whatever it is that's going to be coming to me. But especially at this point, he's saying, I I don't even care about you anymore. I just want it as if you were dead. Give me what's coming to me. Even Even that language, you can see a disrespect in that tone. You can see that there is a neglect or rejection of the father, and I just want the money. Just give me what's coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all he had and traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country and he had nothing Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. Let me say something about this. Again, this is Jewish culture. Jesus is a Jew. He's speaking to Jewish people. And if if you know this about Jewish people, they don't eat pigs. And it's not just that they don't eat pigs, but pigs are completely unclean. It's the filth of the filth, the worst of the worst. So this son, this Jewish boy, is now eating with the pigs. He's down in the mud working with... I mean, it's, it's as low as you can think, right? When we talk about hitting rock bottom or whatever that sort of I'm down in the gutter thing might be, this is where he is in his life at this point. He longed to eat with them, but when he came to his senses, he said... How many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he's rehearsing kind of this speech that he's going to give to his father. He realizes, I've sinned against my father, I have sinned against God, and I'm not even worthy to be a son. I'm, I'm not worthy to be called your son. I, I just need to be a, a slave. I need to be a hired worker. I need, I, I don't, I've lost that status. So he got up and went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran threw his arms around his neck and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father told his servants, quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. And let's celebrate with a feast because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So the son comes back home. He rehearses his speech to his father. Even, even mid-speech, the father interrupts him, gives him a ring, gives him a robe, gives him sandals on his feet, and says, let's, let's have a party. And they begin to celebrate. And then it says, now his older son, remember there's two sons, was in the field. As he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants questioning what these things meant. Your brother's here, he told him. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. And you would think that in that moment, the, the older brother would say, this is good news. This is great. Then he became angry and didn't want to go in. So his father came out and pleaded with him, but he replied to his father. And even just this beginning word, look, you can see there's disrespect in that. We don't, we don't address each other like that, right? You, if, you're, if you're speaking to someone, if your first word is look, that's usually bad, right? And especially if you're speaking, again, 2,000 years ago, Middle Eastern culture, if you are speaking to your father that way and you say, look, that's just a disrespect tone that this young man has and he needs to be called by his middle name and you know, taken to task. Look, I've been slaving many years for you and I have never disobeyed your orders. You can see how his heart is processing not just this moment, but his whole life. I have been slaving many years for you. I have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends, but when this son of yours, not my brother, when this son of yours came who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, we don't even know if that's true, he's just judgmental, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him, son, doesn't say look, son, actually translated could be my child, he said to him, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, this story helps us with one of those keys that can change everything. This story, whether you've heard it a hundred times or whether it's new to you, is one of those keys and one of the reasons it is, it is so famous and has been around for so long and people latch onto is that it is one of those keys. It gives to us one of those keys that actually can change everything. It helps us to see what keeps us from God, and it helps us to see who God really is. It helps shape our view So really, we're just going to look at two questions, what keeps us from God and what God's response is, who God is that is shown to us. So the first question is just this, what keeps us from God? What do we see in this story? What do we see that with both of these brothers creates pain, creates distance? What is it that we see? And really, this, this story gives to us two common ways that people live that hopefully we can find our self in. And I love this story because what it shows us is that life is more complicated than just the good people and the bad people. It's not that the good people are with God and the bad people are away from God. It's more complicated than that. Both of these sons are far from God. God is represented as the father in the story. Both of them are far from God. And remember, Jesus is telling this story to two different groups of people that are listening in. He's telling it to the Pharisees and the scribes, who were the religious leaders, and he's telling it to the tax collectors and sinners. And both of these people, Jesus is offering an opportunity to be changed. He's offering an opportunity to experience a key that can change everything. This story gives to us two different ways that people live. And if we kind of just dig into it a little bit more with each of these groups, maybe you'll find yourself kind of more in one or more in the other, or at one time in your life, one, or one time in your life, the other, or maybe even just some sort of hybrid that you will experience. But, but let me kind of explain both of these groups that reveal... What keeps us from God. The first group represented by the younger son is those of us that maybe live centered on our passions, living life centered on our passions, saying, I want to follow my heart. And maybe even, I don't want, if you think about the younger son, I don't want to kind of be where Uh, where I was. I, I don't want tradition and authority represented by the Father. I want to go and be free to discover myself and do what I want to do. I want to be free from restraint and restriction and be able to just kind of go and pursue and be free where no one can kind of tell me what to do or what's right or what's wrong. Many people, especially in a place like Denver, do exactly what this younger son did. And I'm not saying this is all bad, but that they leave where they're from. They go to a new city. This is what he did. They go to a new city. They make new friends. They develop new beliefs. And they want to kind of get away from that place that they were from and go out, discover themselves, explore life. And And if we could slow down the story, it's a story, right? So it's not an actual historical event that happened. But if we could slow down the story... This dude's got a bunch of money moving to a new city. Like that's, I'm sure he had a blast. If you slow down, like we, we get the story that he leaves town, he leaves home with all of this money and then only a couple lines later, it says that he runs out of money and foolish living and spent everything and then a famine happens. But if we slow it down from I've got tons of money and I'm going to a new city to do some foolish living. That kind of sounds fun. Like most of us would be like, yeah, sign me up. Bunch of money, all my inheritance, and some foolish living. That, that sounds like a, a song, you know. That, that's like, that sounds great. And he goes, and he does it. And so, again, some of you maybe have lived this. Maybe this is your life recently. You've left home. You've gone out on your own. You've Maybe you didn't get an inheritance, but you made some money, and you are seeking to explore life, discover yourself, be free from constraint and restriction, and how you grew up, and the authority and tradition, and you just want new people, new place, and new foolish living. You slow it down, he was probably enjoying life. This story is helpful because we don't always see the end of where those things can lead. The story's helpful because foolish living in the moment might be great. We don't always see where it leads to. Have you felt, and maybe do you identify with this younger son, with, again, whether that's now or maybe at some point, I need to be free. I need to be free to just enjoy life. I don't want to be confined to tradition and my past experiences. Have you felt that? Have you gone and even pursued new beliefs and new friends and a new city? I also think this, is, this has always been interesting to me in this story, and I think this is true for many people that I've, that I've talked with. I don't know if the son, maybe he did, but you know, it's, again, it's a story, but in the moment, it doesn't say that he said, I really can't stand my father, so I want to leave it sounds more like he wanted this, and so he's leaving. And I think that's true for, for many of us often. We don't feel necessarily in our heart, I want to leave God, I'm done with God, I'm mad with God, or I'm sick of God, but we feel like I want this. I wanna live this life. I want freedom. And don't even sometimes realize that if, if this is life with God, it's not necessarily that we're pushing him away or we don't consciously feel that, but rather it's we want those things, but the steps that we take to move towards those things lead us away from God. I think this happens to many people. I've talked to many people in Denver that, you know, I grew up in church and grew up as a Christian and, and moved to Denver and Don't even realize, man, it's been three years, it's been four years, I'm not a part of a church, I'm not, and and don't even realize, and it's not because there was a conscious choice to say, I'm done here, it's just that there was a conscious choice to say, I want these things, I want this, I want to discover myself, I want freedom, I want, This this is a life that the younger son represents that is centered on our passions, our desires, our freedom, the second son represents a life centered on something else, and yet still is kept from God, interestingly, because it's not what we expect. This is a son whose life is centered on principles. He says, I will follow the rules. I will be good. I will conform. I will do the right things. I will stay home. I will obey my father. I will, even when the son comes home, he's out working in the field. He's a hard worker. He's committed to these kinds of things. Maybe this is more you. And sometimes in families, it doesn't always work out this way, but the older one is like that, and the younger one is like this. And Sometimes in families, just like in this story, if you are the older one, or maybe you're the younger one and it's your older one that's like this, but you even, like him, kind of dislike the younger one. Uh, they're always doing that, and they're just doing whatever they want, and they don't appreciate mom and dad, and they, they're not following the rules, and they're just kind of going their own way and doing their own thing and beating a drum to their own tune or whatever that phrase is. I, I probably got it wrong, but they're just kind of doing whatever. I don't I I, I mix, you know, whatever. This son is obedient. He's hardworking. He's following the rules. He's living the right way. But there's no love of the father in him. You can see that easily. And there's no love of the brother in him. And it's interesting that the reason he rejects the father is because of his obedience. It's because of his morality. It's because of his hard work. Those are actually the reasons that he rejects the father. He doesn't say, I want to kind of live my own life and do my own thing. He says, I've always obeyed you. I've always worked hard. And so rejects the Father. Again, Jesus is telling this story as the Pharisees would be listening in, and this was exactly what was happening in their life, but I think we can't be too quick to say, oh yeah, those bad Pharisees, because Jesus is inviting us to reflect as well if this might be true of us. Have you ever looked at your life? Have you ever felt that your obedience isn't paying off? Maybe for those of you that have been Christians for a while or, or have tried to live the right way and work hard and be a good person, have you ever felt like it's not paying off? Like, God, I'm doing things the right way. These people are doing these things and their life is fine. I'm living the right way and I still don't have the things that I feel like you should give to me. I've lived my life the right way, I've worked hard, I've stayed close to home, I've been moral, I've made good choices, I've used my money the right way, I've I've gone to church, I've read the Bible, whatever it might be, and and feel like it's not paying off. And we can feel like with God, and maybe some of you have, have felt this, upset with God, or bitter towards God, and these things don't always come to the surface. It took a moment for the older son to feel like this, right? It took something kind of pushed in front of him of there's this party going on. It says that he hears music and dancing. There's nothing worse that religious people hate than to go, music and dancing? What is that? And, go, and all of a sudden, are just like, something is bad, right? He, he hears music and dancing brought in front of him, and then this stuff kind of bubbles out of his heart, right? So we might not even know this is in our heart until something takes place that shows, are you upset with God? You feel like God owes you and hasn't come through? Are you bitter towards God? You feel like you've lived a good life and he hasn't given you in return? He, you've done your part and he hasn't done his part? Even if you hear the Son, his view of God, of the Father, is really warped. He says, I've been slaving for you. So that, what does that show? I mean, that shows, okay, so you've been working hard and obeying all this time, but really in your heart, you felt like you were a slave. You weren't doing it because you loved the Father and enjoyed the Father. And sometimes for us, we can be doing all these Christian things. God, I've obeyed you. I've, I serve at church. I do these things. I give my money. I help people. But we feel like I'm slaving. We don't feel a joyful service. And his view of the father, he says, I, you know, I've, I've done all these things and you've never even given me a goat. And the father says, everything is yours. You can have any goat you want. You can have any calf you want. You can have whatever you want. And sometimes we've got a warped view of God. This was true of the pharisees and i think it's often true of us are you do you feel any upsetness towards god any bitterness towards god any coldness maybe is even sometimes a better word the son might not have even realized his upsetness and bitterness until the moment brought it to the forefront but probably lived with a coldness which is just a distance a no affection no warmth no when you think of god it's not like ah, my father it's It's like, yeah, okay, there's that guy I work for and I'm trying to do a good job for and trying to obey his orders. Is there a coldness towards God? Or sometimes it might not even be best diagnosed in how we feel of God, but how we feel of others. This older brother looks down on the younger brother, distances himself from him, this son of yours hanging out with prostitutes. Again, he doesn't know that that's true. He hasn't even talked to him. I doubt he had a t-shirt that said, I was with prostitutes. He, he's just judging him, thinking, of course, that's what the younger brother would do. Is your view towards others easily judgmental? Is your view towards others to look down on them, to think less of them, To view yourself as hardworking and them as lazy. To view yourself as following the rules and them as breaking the rules. To view yourself as faithful and them as unfaithful. To view yourself as in and them as out. To view yourself as the good one and them as the bad one. Is that true of a heart posture in you? Even a jealousy that happens with this older brother. We can do it all right. We can follow all the rules. We can stay close to home. We can read our Bible. We can be good Christian people. And if that's done in any way to earn from God or to get a reward from God or to be blessed by God, then what that means is, one, we're probably always going to feel some sort of bitterness or upsetness towards God when things don't go exactly the way we want them. Because we feel we've done our due. But second, here's what it means. It means that in reality, if, if the things that we are doing and the way that we are living and the way that we are obeying and the way that we are serving, if in any way, that's actually because we want God to bless us, reward us. It means that we are our own savior. It means that we are actually just trying to keep control of our life and use God for the things that we want. See, both of these sons don't feel a need for the father. Both of these sons want to use the father, the younger, for his, for his money and to go do what he wants. And, and the older, just doesn't really want the father either. He wants his payment. He wants his due. He wants his reward. Neither of them have a love for the father. Neither of them want the father. And either by their good deeds and their good life and their serving and obedience or by their I'm leaving town and doing what I want, either by their good or their bad, both of them are seeking to keep control of their life. Both of them are seeking through either passions or principles to reject a person and just keep control of their life. Both of them are kept from the Father through their own pride and their own desire to stay in control of life. Which of these, I'm not asking for a you know a real poll or a raise of hands, but but which of these do you identify with? Which of these do you see yourself in? This is what keeps us from God. What is God's response? That's our second question. What, what is God's response to either of these heart postures? And Again, you might find yourself fully in one of these camps or somewhere in between or different times or sort of ish on both of them. What is God's response? And really, when we say what is God's response, this in many ways is what is the message of Christianity? What is it that, back to our original thing, what is it that changes us? If our view of God is off, and really he's just a person that we're using to serve ourselves, we'll miss it. Who is God? What is his response? What is it that can actually change us if we get it more inside? This is a story, but it's a picture of God that Jesus is giving to us that we oftentimes miss. And Here's three things that we can see in this story of God's response, or really the message of Christianity. The first is this, that the father pursues both of these sons. It's beautiful. He doesn't wait. He pursues both of them. He goes after both of these sons. When the the younger son, it says, was still a long way off, he goes to him. It says the, the younger son is still a long way off. And you can read that to think that the father probably has been waiting, has been watching, has been looking at the road in the distance that his son had wandered off from, however long ago it was, and is looking, waiting. And then in the distance, he sees him start to come up. What do you do in that moment? If you've ever had someone sin against you and maybe you can see them coming tail between their legs to come talk with you do you run to them or do you wait and go this is going to be good this is what I've been waiting for Are you sure you want to stand you don't want to kneel I mean I'm 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 fine with either but The father sees his son and runs to him. And many commentators have pointed out that old men don't run. It's an old movie, White Men Can't Jump, and old men can't run. That should be the sequel, right? Old men don't run. They don't run today. I mean, sometimes you can see, like, on a trail, you know, there's some old guys out there, and you're like, yes, get it, man. But... And especially, I mean, these people wore robes. It's hard to run in a robe. You'd have to tuck it up. And that causes all sorts of things, right? And old guys running in a robe is, it's kind of an embarrassing thing. It's an... Father doesn't care. He sees his son and runs to him. But listen, it's not just the younger son. The father, it says, goes out to the older son also they're in this party and they're having a great time. They're eating meat and they're celebrating and music and dancing. And father looks out the window and sees older son out there just kinda angry. I don't know what he's doing. I was gonna say he was out there smoking, but he wouldn't, definitely wouldn't be doing that. He's out there chewing gum or something, you know? And he's just on the outside. And the father, it says, goes out to him and pleads with him, come in. See, the Father, this is the first thing that we see about God's response. He pursues. He pursues. He comes to us. He goes towards us. This is the gospel. The gospel, which means good news, is not that we have to work our way up to God, but it's that God in Christ came down to us. The ultimate form of the Father running to us or coming out and pleading to us is that he, in the flesh, that God took on flesh, this is called the incarnation, that he became flesh, that he came. He didn't just run down the road. He didn't just come out of the party, but he came to earth, that Jesus comes and pursues us. This is the gospel. He doesn't wait for us to come in. He comes to us. where are you? I don't know, like you got to put yourself in this story, but then even move from the story to think about your life now. Where are you? Are you a long way off? Are you standing outside of the joy of God? Are, have you chosen other priorities in your life as most important and gone that way? Do you feel a coldness to God, an upsetness to God, a bitterness towards God, maybe even a judgmental spirit towards other people? Do you feel a distance from Him? Where are you? And wherever you find yourself, What's his heart towards you? If you are in the mud with pigs, or if you're outside of the party, what do you think God's heart is towards you? Right now. Not when you change. Not when you get it together. What's God's heart towards you? This you, not the you that you were a few years ago when things were better. Not the you that you want to be. Not the you even just on Sunday. What's God's heart towards you now? I love what it says about the father. It says that he sees his son and he is filled with compassion. Think about that. To be filled, not that he felt it even, but that he was filled with compassion. It says that about the younger son, but we can see that same heart in him towards the older son in his pleading to him. It says he, listen even to these words that it it uses of the father, that he runs to him, that he is filled with compassion, and that he sees him and he embraces him. It says he throws his arms around his neck, and not like in a bad way, right? I know this older gentleman from Arkansas, and I never heard this phrase before, and maybe some of you have. I'm not from the South. I'm from Seattle. But he, he's always like, I just want to see you and hug your neck. That's a Seattle person's impression of an old Southern man. But that hug your neck, which is kind of weird, but it's, that's, that's how Southern people hug, you know? And it's an it's a embrace. It is not just a he sees his son and shakes his hand. It's, it says he runs to him. He's filled with compassion. It says he throws his arms around his neck. There's an effusiveness in the Father's heart towards you. I don't know where you are right now, but I know what God's heart is towards you. It says he's filled with compassion. It says he runs. Not even walks. Runs. That's the first thing. God's response. And part of what we need, listen, if you want to change, part of one of those keys that's going to unlock everything and lead to change of everything is our view of God. Obviously, the older son and the younger son missed this. He's a God that pursues. Secondly, he's a God that gives costly grace this younger son had real sin. It's not light sin. It's not kind of sin. Real sin. And the older son, real sin. Of the younger son, the father says he was dead and is now alive. Which is to say that he views the sin as so bad he's calling it death. Which is what the Bible says of all of our sin. That we are dead in our sin. So it's, it's not soft-pedaling it at all. And yet, he gives costly grace. Oftentimes, we feel in our sin, whether that's just a bad day or a bad year or a bad years or a bad life, oftentimes, we feel in our sin, I've got to work it off in some way. And if I can work it off enough, then okay, me and God can be good. Sometimes we even view grace as a second chance, which means, okay, maybe I've lived bad, but God, just give me a a second chance, and then as long as I don't mess it up from this point, then we're good. That's not what we see here. It says, again, one of these effusive words The son said to his father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And there was more to the speech that he rehearsed previously. It says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And then the next word is, but. So that means the father interrupts him. As the son is rehearsing his, I've sinned against this, I've sinned against you, I'm no longer worthy to be your son, and he's going to go on to say what he told us before that he was rehearsing when he was with the pigs is, let me be like one of your hired workers. But the father interrupts. But the father told his servants, quick. Do you see how that, the father's listening to the son confess. But he's so filled with grace, he interrupts him and says, quick! He's not waiting. The son doesn't have to work something off. The son doesn't have to have a few good days. Quick! He wants to show grace. Costly grace. The Father, listen, wherever you are, Whether you are religious like a Pharisee, judgmental, self-righteous, cold towards God, feel distant from God, you've neglected God, you're distant from him, you've ignored him, or you have kind of pursued other things and in the process abandoned God, maybe without even knowing it, maybe consciously, whichever, wherever you are, God is quick and ready to give grace not waiting to see how it plays out. He is quick and ready to give grace to each of us. What he does for the son is, as I've said, give costly grace. When I say costly, you see that it says, he, he says, give, I mean, look what he does for it. Give him a, it's the, the four R's. He gives him a ring, a robe, ribs, and a rave. All four things. He's like, you need all of this, dude. Not even, a ring would be good enough, right? Like, you have sinned, here's a ring. Like, that's a pretty, I've never sinned against someone and then they gave me a ring as, you know, their grace. But he says, a ring, the best robe, which would have been the Father's robe. I don't have a robe, but no one's wearing my robe if I had one. A ring, the best robe, Sandals on his feet, let's kill the calf and throw him a party. Let's I mean, he goes all out in his grace. That's who God is. He gives costly grace. At cost to himself, the father is restoring the Son. At cost to himself, the Father is not just forgiving, but restoring, clothing. That is a picture of what Jesus does ultimately, right? Jesus is telling this story about the Father's costly grace, but we are meant to see this picture of God who in Jesus does that very thing for us. On the cross, Jesus forgives us of our sin at cost to himself, but does not only forgive us, the Bible says he clothes us in his righteousness. The Bible says that we are adopted as children into his family. That he is effusive in his grace to us. At cost to himself. Our sin. His payment. Just like this son. And listen, I, I don't know how you feel. You might know some of these truths, but at times, I know I do, still be unsure of your standing with God. At times, we might know these truths, he's gracious, but still be unsure of our standing, and it kind of goes up and down. Some days I might feel good with God, some days I might feel bad with God. If I'm doing good, I might feel good. If I'm doing bad, I might feel bad. And Jesus is saying, that's not how God relates to us at all. He gives a costly grace. We are defined not by our work or our goodness or our performance. We're defined by his grace to us. We're defined by what Jesus has done for us. That at cost to himself, Jesus made us alive. So first, we see of the Father that he pursues Second, we see that he gives costly grace. We could say also that he receives us and that he restores us. And then finally, we see that God's response is to invite to the party. It's not just that you're forgiven. It's not just that you are restored. It's that he is led into joy and community. And the same thing that the father is inviting the older son to. Come into the party, son. See, oftentimes we can think that if we want joy in life, if we want the party, if we want celebration, if we want the fattened calf, if we want the music and dancing, if we want that, we've got to go get it somewhere else. There might be a pursuit of God and a pursuit of joy, but they're often not linked together. But what Jesus is revealing to us here about The message of Christianity, what can change us, what God's response is, is that God says, I'm a God of joy. The father doesn't just say, welcome back, son, here's a shovel. He says, welcome, kill the calf, let's have a party. Over and over and over again in the Bible, God is revealed as a God of joy. Listen, God wants your joy more than you do. We think we're committed to our joy and so we spend our money on these things and we have these goals and we want to travel here and we want to have these experiences and God says, I want your joy more than you even want your joy. He reveals himself here in this picture as the God of celebration. And obviously the younger son missed that. He thought he had to go find that somewhere else and the older son missed that. We can all miss that he's a God that invites us to the party. Is this your faith when you think of God? Is your faith, I I belong to and I want to experience joy in God? Or do you think you've got to find that somewhere else? Even when we looked at the resurrection, the resurrection says that he is a God of life and joy. And one day, the the end-time picture that God paints for us is a feast and celebration. The resurrection says God wants to bring us into joy and life. What is God's response? It's effusive. He receives, he restores, he rejoices. Only this will draw us to God. I think we all want change in our life and even some key to be able to say this changes everything. This changes my marriage. This changes my family. This changes my work. This changes my own view of myself. It changes what faith is. It changes even how I view sin. It changes, it changes everything. Jesus gives to us this story that says this can change everything. This is what Christianity claims. It can change your view of God, but we have to see who he is and what keeps us from him. We'll never experience the change that we want if either of those things are off. So here's here's what this means just as we close. Where do you need to confess sin? Maybe it's like the younger son. And you need to confess a life where you've gone to pursue other things and left God. You need to confess that you didn't really care about God. You didn't really want God. You, you just wanted these things. Maybe you need to confess the good things in your life, not the bad. Maybe it's not the bad that you've done that you need to confess. It's the good that you've done with a wrong heart. One that actually felt like I'm slaving to God. One that felt... Like, I've obeyed you, I've always obeyed you, but your heart is cold to God. You might have lived a really bad life and you need to confess, like the prodigal son. You may have lived a really good life and need to confess, like the pharisaical son. Both of those things keep us from God. I don't know where you are or where you tend to land or go back and forth between, but Part of the application of this story is to just see our hearts and to bring those to God and confess. Maybe even as a religious son, you might need to confess your uncaring heart towards the younger brother. You know, this story ends not telling us what happens. We don't know if the older son goes in. We don't know what happens. We just know that Jesus ends it with saying, your brother, this brother of yours. What are you going to do with that? For those of us that maybe have a judgmental or self righteous spirit, our confession may need to be to God, but also need to be our lack of care for those that have wandered from God, our own self righteousness. We're going to take communion in just a moment, and when we take communion, we remember these truths about Jesus. That he is the God that left heaven and came to earth to pursue us. That he is a God that gives us costly grace. That at cost to himself on the cross, our sins are forgiven. His body broken, his blood shed to bring us into family, to bring us into joy, to bring us into celebration and resurrection life. And during that time, I want to ask you to confess where you need to confess, to ask for God's heart that he has in your own life. This is what I've been reflecting on a lot this week, is just, God, give me that heart of pursuit and grace and joy. And maybe, maybe again, all these truths you know And what my prayer for us as a church and for myself even this week has been is just ask God to make that stuff more real to you. Ask him, God, this is who you are. And if this actually changes everything, would you let that get inside of me more than it is now? Allow that view of who you are to rest more deeply on my heart. Because I want to experience change in every way. What, what kind of people would we be if we lived like this, if we saw him like this? It really does change everything. This is what we want to experience, and as we talk about change, this is the starting place. So I'm going to pray, and then take a moment in your seat, for those of us that are Christians, and pray, and then, and then take communion when you're ready. Father, I I thank you that you reveal yourself to us as a God of grace, that you reveal yourself to us as a God that doesn't wait for us to get it all together, to think it all the right way, to feel it all the right way, but you come after us. You show a grace that we could never earn. You show a love that pursues and comes to us where we are. You show a joy and celebration that you want to invite us into. And so I pray, Lord, even now as we take communion, that you would allow these truths to rest more deeply in our hearts. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.